according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the Bible to Isaiah chapter 11. The book of Isaiah, where we've been for the last 10 weeks, and for today we move on now to chapter 11. So far, so good. The Lord has brought us through 10 chapters in 10 weeks, and we shall see how uh, His faithfulness continues to manifest itself moving forward. This is a tough one, though. In fact, this is one whereby some topics come up. I want to do the same thing in chapter 7, uh, Some same thing in chapter 9. There's so much Christology, the Messianic prophecies in these chapters, that um, it would be uh, very easy to take a, a special Wednesday night or some kind of an extra class, add an extra class to our schedule and spend some time with the, uh, the stem of Jesse and detail the prophecy here. We just don't have the time to do it, not in the, uh, the format we're presently in. Well, for today it's Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked." Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. We finally reach these verses that everybody just loves and wants to talk about and can't wait to see unfolded, failing to recognize that we don't have this uh, uh, you know, rainbow and unicorn type of millennial happiness until... Jesus Christ returns and conquers, all right? So ask me if I can visualize world peace. I can visualize world peace because I can visualize Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, riding on his white horse and destroying the forces of evil when he arrives. And that's a context I hope that we never lose sight of. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Let's ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking and to humble us under the authority of his truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and it is a blessing, Father, for us to assemble together today. We realize that day by day, we are testimonies to your faithfulness, your mercies, your grace. None of us were promised today. None of us deserves to be here. And yet, in your grace, you woke us up this morning. In your grace, we had the health and strength to get out of bed. In your grace, you brought us to a place where the word of God goes forth, line upon line, and precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, on this day, we can study to show ourselves approved, and I thank you for that. We ask for your hand of blessing. We ask that you would speak to us, Father, that we would hear the words of your lips. And we realize from this very passage, Father, how destructive the words of your lips can be, but also, Father, how edifying the words of your lips should be. And I pray, Father, that we would be humble to learn from the words of your lips and uh, that we might continue to keep ourselves as objects of your blessing and not objects of your discipline. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
All right. The shoot from the stem of Jesse will be the greatest ruler this world has ever seen. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. The shoot from the stem of Jesse will be the greatest ruler this world has ever seen. It's, it's unbelievable, or maybe it's more believable, how the world looks at different things trying to find a hero, trying to find a savior, trying to find just the right political leader. If we had the right president, if we had the right governor, if we had the right leader that would just do everything for us and solve all our problems and feed us and, and make everything good. All right, And all of these satanic dreams are in hostility against what God himself has promised. That there is coming a ruler. There is coming the, the uh, son of Adam, the son of David, the son of God. And he will exercise his authority appropriately based upon all of the thrones that he is entitled to. But interestingly enough, he's not called the conqueror, right? Like William the conqueror. He's not called the great like Alexander the Great. He's not even called uh, the Terrible, like uh, Ivan the Terrible, right? Which is fear-inspiring, not rotten at what he does, okay? Different idea of terrible there. Um, (laughs) Or there's other ones, right? There's Charles the Bald and Charles the Fat, and there's some others that are not quite so glorious as we have different appellations assigned to historical people and their names. But Jesus Christ is called the Shoot from the Stem of Jesse. And it's interesting, the image that's used. Of course, in his first advent, he's very humble. He comes, he's born of a virgin. He comes, he's not the conqueror in his first advent. But because he was faithful in his humility, he will then be afforded the opportunity to be faithful in his majesty. That's so important that we recognize that the reason why he's entitled to the Armageddon victory is because he was faithful at the Calvary um, humility. All right? And it's the pattern for each one of us to pay, pay attention to, the pattern for each one of us to learn from. Now, I wish we had the time, and someday I encourage you to do a study on Jesse. Jesse the Ephrathite is a significant messianic study. And there is a comprehensive amount of scripture available. You go back to the book of Ruth, and we have the significance of why Bethlehem is such a special place. What is the deal with Bethlehem? What is the deal with the little village where Boaz was located? And uh, in Ruth 1, verses 1 and 2, we have references here. Ruth 4, and I'm just, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I will at least um, spotlight it so that we can see it for what it is. If I'm not careful, I will be in the book of Ruth for the entire hour. So I won't do that. But just briefly, Joshua judges Ruth. All right? It came about in the days... This is Ruth 1.1. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem. Okay? Certain man of Bethlehem. Here's a Christmas story for you. In Judah, went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So you have somebody in the line of Messiah who leaves the promised land because of hard times in, uh, in Israel. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Notice now, Ephrathites. This is their clan. They are Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. 
What does it mean to be an Ephrathite? It means that you descend from that particular branch of the tribe of Judah. We, we, if you're studying the Old Testament, you've got to study the tribes and the clans and the families and understand that the Ephrathites were not a significant clan. They were a minor clan. They were so small, they were not registered in the census among the great clans of Judah. They were not considered a dominant clan within Judah, even though father to son, father to son, this is the line of Christ. This is from Judah all the way down to Jesus Christ comes through the Ephrathah clan. Uh, At the end of the book, in chapter 4, and uh, you want more on the book of Ruth, I recommend Grace Notes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the book of Ruth is practically uh, lesson number one in any Grace Notes course you want to enroll in. But in Ruth chapter 4, we have more references here, starting in verse 11. The, uh, the witnesses, see, there was, a, there was a kinsman closer than Boaz. There was somebody that was closer than Boaz who had a right first to redeem Ruth, and he didn't do it, Right? Uh, we don't know his name. I call him Knucklehead, okay? Because he should have, could have, ought to have redeemed Ruth and had the godliest wife imaginable, but uh, he chooses not to. So Boaz gets the opportunity to redeem Ruth. And uh, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah. This is, again, the clan, the territory uh, within the tribe of Judah uh, for which Bethlehem was the center uh, capital, if you will. May you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, though uh, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. We don't know how old Boaz is. He credits her for, uh, for her grace and her uh, correct mental attitude. He was probably an older man and maybe not as attractive or handsome or strong or whatever, virile for, the, for a young lady to go after, but he praised her for that. And yet God does bless them in this context. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And uh, this is where the line of David comes in. And ultimately the line of Christ comes through this. And uh, so she has a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. And uh, in any event, this is the birth of Obed and then the birth of Jesse. And uh, then, of course, David. We see the lineage there in verse 17. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed, servant. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And there's a lot of doctrine in this, and the meaning of these names, the significance of God to preserve a servant and to do so through this. In 1 Samuel 16, I won't turn there, but this is the calling of David as the new king once uh, uh, Saul has proven himself to be wicked. And, uh, and then in chapter 17, a lot of background there, because even though he's from an obscure clan, Jesse takes his duties to the clan very seriously. He has three older sons serving in Saul's army. He is provisioning that army with food, provisioning that army with, uh, with livestock, with, with sheep and so forth. And uh, the interaction between Jesse and uh, Saul is interesting, even though he's from an obscure clan. He's called the Ephrathite, which means uh, he's the, the, the clan leader. He's the elder of the Ephrathah clan, is Jesse. Uh, 
Finally, then, the great prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. This is worth looking at as well. Micah 5, 2. Remember, Micah is a contemporary with Isaiah. So when you're doing your Isaiah studies, Isaiah is, is giving his word. Micah is giving his word. All right, and in Micah 5, 2, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And we have the uh, promise of the coming Christ. And the territory, the, the actual birthplace of the humanity of Jesus Christ is recorded here in Micah 5, 2. So there are significant messianic studies to be engaged in in uh, the person of Jesse. And uh, yes, he's the son of David, but he's the shoot from the stem of Jesse. And that is huge. It testifies to the heritage that David received from his father, from his childhood. A heritage passed to Solomon and passed into the scriptures as we understand it. But it's not a study we're going to do today. (laughs) Here's another study we could do but won't. The seven ministries of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ. We have reference to the seven spirits of God before his throne, or the seven eyes of the Lamb in Revelation, which are the seven spirits of God. And it puzzles a lot of people because they say, what are the seven spirits of God? I only know of the Holy Spirit. There's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. So what is the reference to the seven spirits of God in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, Revelation 3, 1, Revelation 4, 5? or Revelation 5, 6, oftentimes it's believed that it points back to this very passage right here, that it points back to the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. In fact, seven facets here that are often counted and related to what God the Holy Spirit does to uh, into believers and through believers throughout uh, the unfolding of His plan. Well, we're not going to do this study either, (laughs) all right? These are the kind of things we stop and we break out and we would pursue on a more in-depth basis as we have time. It would be about, I don't know, seven, eight weeks, 14 weeks to do a study of the seven ministries of God the Holy Spirit just from this one verse alone, all right? Not the format of this hour. This hour, we're giving you the big picture, the broad overview of uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Understand, though, there's meat. There's meat to dig out. The thing about if you're you're brand new to the Word of God and you're just now getting a handle for what the Word of God says and how the Word of God is studied and how we learn, you realize this is the rest of our life. We're going to spend the rest of our days on planet Earth in the Scriptures, digging and digging and digging. And the deeper we dig, we realize there's more to learn. There is so much more to learn. And we thank God for how faithful He is to take us into the realms that we need at exactly the right moment that we need them. But now, we will slow down and talk about the perfect politician ever. We'll talk about what it means to be righteous in reigning and ruling. And we see that it starts with a delight for the fear of the Lord in verse 3. What I call a fear delight. A fear delight. Combining two different expressions. And um, without doing all the exegesis or telling even what the Hebrew words even are. We can delight in a lot of things, okay? Sin is able to delight in sin. We can delight in, in what gives us pleasure. That's what a delight is, okay? If it's delightful looking, 
It's pleasant to look at, delightful smelling, delightful tasting, delightful feeling, delightful. I mean, anything, it affects your senses. And, and in a pleasurable way, we call that delightful, all right? And we should have the soul capacity to experience soul pleasure because the soul perceives, it sees, it hears, it smells, all right? Everything that your body does in the, in the physical senses your soul, Scripture says your soul does. We have spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, spiritual noses, spiritual lips. We can touch, see, hear, feel, taste with our souls. And in the fear of the Lord, we have those kind of appetites that the Lord himself has. We want to develop a taste for those things. And this is where it's not simply left to us in what it is that we find tasty, what it is we find take pleasure in, all right? And this is where in the spiritual realm, we either line up with God's standard or we line up for the hand of God's judgment. We line up for discipline when it comes right down to it. Not so much in the earthly realm. God leaves that up to you. All right. <laughs> if, uh, uh, you know, my wife loves chocolate. I love vanilla. We're, we're a mixed marriage. What can I say? It's just, it, it is what it is. And it works. It works because I never steal her chocolate and she leaves my vanilla alone and and so we have harmony and peace in the in the uh, ice cream freezer but see there's no there's no um eternal reward for that it's not judged at the, at the judgment seat of christ we don't stand before the lord and he says oh you're a chocolate person huh right or oh apple or pc or ford or chevy or what none of those things matter and you can take delight and take pleasure if you think sushi tastes great. Hey, I will give you all the sushi you want and not fight you for a bit of it. That's with the earthly tastes, okay? Now, in the spiritual taste, what is it that delights your soul? Because your soul can take delight in the wrong things. We're told about love. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. We, sh- we should not delight in wickedness, although the carnal mind can and often does. We want to have the fear of the Lord that gives us His delights. What are the things that God Himself delights in? What does He find delightful? And the Bible describes that for us. The Bible describes it in our application, and it describes it in Jesus Christ's application when He comes to reign and so here, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Pleasing God the Father, it gives him the greatest pleasure imaginable. And it should give us the greatest pleasure imaginable. That serving Jesus Christ ought to be tastier than even, uh, even the, the biggest, uh, what is that, mile-high bacon cheeseburger that, that uh, Carl's Jr. puts out there. All right? Nothing in an earthly taste can compare to the soul taste of delighting in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see. His earthly eyes go to the back seat. His spiritual eyes are in the driver's seat. All right, Viewing with the fear of the Lord, viewing the spiritual realities. Nor will he make a decision by what his ears hear. The earthly ears go to the back seat. The spiritual ears are in the driver's seat. With righteousness, he will judge the poor. Decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Everybody grumbles over the injustice system that we have, right? The, the finest legal system that money can buy. And that's not, shouldn't be a joke, but it is. And that's the nature of what we have. 
until we have a perfect, righteous judge who won't need jurors, who won't need testimony, who will, in omniscience, know every fact of everything, and he will judge perfectly, completely, thoroughly. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and he will, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. You want some more verses on this? See, here's the thing. I think believers get off track. I think Christians get all excited about the ballot box, forgetting that, we, yes, we, we, clearly we want to vote for righteousness and vote against wickedness, but if you think we're going to bring about the millennium or the millennial reign of Jesus Christ through political elections, not going to happen. All right? Not going to happen. Psalm 45, verses 6 through 9, here's another passage that talks about the coming king. And it's a nice passage. Every time if, uh, if uh, the news gets you discouraged, then uh, read Psalm 45. All right? Read, uh, read the news before it's the news. Okay? This is prophetic for what we have to look forward to. Your throne, O God. This is Psalm uh, 45 and verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. See, if you keep track of these expressions, you understand that the coming Messiah is God himself. God becoming man, God in the flesh. And yet he is serving his Father. So therefore, God the Son, your God, God the Father, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. There have been a lot of kings before you, from David to Solomon to Rehoboam, all the way down to Jeconiah, and then the vacated throne. But now, the greater son of David will be the one anointed by God the Father himself. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. There's a hymn we sing every so often. Then verse 9, King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen. Here's the bride of Christ in mystery mystery form. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. All right, so here's another expression. Why is he a great king? Because he conquers, because he has success on the battlefield. How many uh, tyrants, how many generals are great on the battlefield, but then they conquer, and then they try to rule, and they find out they're pretty crummy rulers. All right, they're great conquerors, but they're crummy rulers. And they don't know the first thing about judging with fairness. They don't know the first thing about the, the needy and the poor and the weak. As far as they know, they're just tyrants. You know, the, the needy and the poor and the weak are easy victims. Uh, But that's not the case with Jesus Christ. He will rule, and we're looking forward to that. Ruling with righteous judgment. This is the nature of God himself. 1 Samuel 16, 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7. I think we all should know what this says. If not, then you can learn it today. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Could have gone here on the last slide, and I'm going here on this slide. That's all right. Uh, this is uh, this is again a part of our study of Jesse, part of our study of the Ephrathite, and uh, Saul is a wicked king, and God's going to replace him. He's choosing out for himself a man after God's own heart, and uh, 
So Samuel gets sent to Bethlehem. And the Lord says to Samuel, I will, uh, in verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And you would think, who? The Bethlehemite? What's a Bethlehem? Who are, what's the clan of Ephrathah? I never heard of them. How obscure is this, is this place? But God has selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. As soon as you turn into something spiritual, Saul will have no interest at all. He'll start ignoring you. <laughs> you know, don't worry about it. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and who you shall anoint for me, the one whom I designate to you. We saw that last hour. Everything we bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Everything we loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What we do on this earth is a reflection of the will of God. What it is that God, who's the king God has already selected? All right. So Samuel did what the Lord said, came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came trembling to meet him. Yeah, so it was not always good when, when uh, the prophet showed up. The last time he went to, he started hacking King Agag up into pieces. And um, the, the prophets were pretty violent in, uh, back in the day. So the elders come to him and say, have you come in peace? He says, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, so consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons. Now here's what's, I love this. You can read this. I've taken the teenagers through this passage before. This is so important. So they they get this thing ready. Jesse's sons start entering. And as soon as the first one walks in, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, wow, there's a hero. There's a king. There's a, there's, a, there's a studly guy. Look at this guy. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, now you would think Samuel would know better. He's a prophet. He's been around a while. He's an older man. But see, you get caught up in appearances. You get all these expectations, all these worldly views that seep into even your spiritual thinking, and you don't realize how, uh, how it just sneaks in there before you know it. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, in other words, don't judge by externals. If you're picking out a wife, don't just pick because of earthly beauty. Notice, I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we tell our, our boys, we tell our teenagers, we tell everybody that wants to listen, and that doesn't want to listen, go to the inner beauty. Look at the soul. Don't be all distracted by the... By the, don't get all Twitter-pated like in Bambi, all right? Uh, looking, at the, looking at the external appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. Jesus Christ is going to judge not on earthly appearances, but on the heart. He will know the reality. We judge with righteous judgment. And so Jesse called Abinadab. Well, nope, not him either. Then Shema, the Lord said, nope, not this one either. Seven sons passed by, and the Lord said, none of these. Wow. Well, I'm kind of out of options here, Lord. See, just when you think there's nowhere else to turn, nothing else to do, you've exhausted all your human effort, and then you learn you shouldn't have been relying on human effort to begin with. (laughs) In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your steps. Now there's one more son coming. The little one, the runt, the one no one expects anything of. He's out there in the fields. He's, he's, uh, He's about his father's business. And that tells you all you need to know right there. So Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, well, there's one more, but didn't think he'd be interested in him. 
Behold, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, bring him. We will not sit down until he comes here. And so here comes David. He was ready with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Anyway, God knows those that he has chosen. John 5.30 and John 7.24, some New Testament applications then. We are to judge with righteous judgment. This is how Jesus judges. In John 5.30, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was his pattern in First Advent. It's going to be his pattern when he's seated on the throne of David. He will reign on David's throne, but he will not seek his own will. He will constantly, constantly be seeking the will of God the Father. And he's going to judge without righteous judgment. In John chapter 7 and verse 24, he tells his disciples to have the same kind of judgment. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. That's a command. You might want to underline that. Print that up on some little business cards or whatever. So the next time one of the mocking, skeptical, scornful unbelievers tries to slap Matthew 7, 1 in your face and says, judge not lest you be judged, then you can just hand him the, the John seven twenty four card that says, judge with righteous judgment and be obedient to both passages. All right? But fear, delight, prompts is righteous judgment. Same thing for us. If we fear the Lord, if we delight in His Word, uh, what kind of judgment are we going to have in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in our workplace? We're keeping the Lord focused for seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. What might we expect the results going to be in, in secular life? Okay? And this is why we put it, this is why Scripture puts it in this order. First things first, second things second. Finally, here's an eschatological study for you in these first five verses. At his second advent, Jesus Christ will faithfully slay the wicked. Faithfully. He came humbly, very faithful. His second advent, likewise, will be very faithful to slay the wicked. He will very, the sword will proceed from his mouth. He's going to destroy the forces of Antichrist. He will faithfully slay the wicked, starting with Antichrist, and then wicked rebels throughout his millennial reign. Wicked rebels throughout his millennial reign. The millennial kingdom is not going to be easy. He will have to rule with a rod of iron because it will be a rebellious reign. The Gentiles will be chafing at their bonds. They will dislike having the Jewish king over them in Jerusalem. And so we read about it. Read about his victory in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Don't ever get discouraged because this hour and the power of darkness belong to the adversary. <laughs> because they call good evil and evil good. You're called hateful because you stand for the truth. The, reckon, the reckoning is on the way. Alright? And um, in the meantime, in the meantime, be mindful that God is merciful and desires for none to perish. If you're hoping that you're just waiting for the day, rubbing your hands, hoping that they're going to get theirs, wait a minute. Start giving the gospel, getting them saved so you can rescue them from getting theirs. Understand that Christ already took their punishment. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 Then, only after the rapture, will that lawless one be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end 
by the appearance of his coming. He's going to both slay him and bring him to an end. Antichrist will die and be thrown alive into the lake of fire. So if you need to study that, then there's more homework to be done. (laughs) Okay? This is eschatology. This is end time stuff. This hadn't happened yet. Hadn't happened yet. But if the rapture sounds today, this could start, the, the, the wheels of this could start turning tomorrow. Jesus Christ is going to slay him. Even throughout his millennial reign, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be mourning by mourning. There are going to be mourning executions. Psalm 101, verse 8. Psalm 101, verse 8. If any unbeliever is stupid enough to remain within the sacred bounds of Jerusalem overnight, then in the morning, he will be executed. Psalm 101, verse 8. So it's one of these things. If you're wicked and you stop by for a visit, I recommend getting out of Jerusalem. Don't be caught in Jerusalem the next morning. Psalm 101, verse 8. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. But in the millennial kingdom, morning by morning, the wicked are executed. Likewise, Proverbs 2.22. We've got that coming up Wednesday morning. Proverbs 2. The wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. So stay tuned for that. Now, the middle section of the chapter, verses 6 through 9, the fun petting zoo portion of Isaiah chapter 11. The post-flood animal conditions will be reverted to pre-flood animal peace. The post-flood animal hostility will be reverted back to pre-flood animal peace. Ever since Noah's flood, there has been a divinely assigned hostility, a fear of man placed within the animal realm of existence. That's going to be undone for the millennial kingdom. That judgment will be reversed. That judgment will be revoked. And this is, uh, I think, a useful study as well in in a variety of different things. Again, we got these fun verses here. If you notice today, if you notice your little child reaching into a viper's nest, um, stop that, okay? Uh, Because you cannot claim this promise today. I know there's Pentecostal groups and whatnot that try to because of the questionable Mark 16 reference. But anyway, this is millennial in this application. So the, uh, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Significant dietary adjustments in the animal realm. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we have post-flood animal conditions that are going to be reverted back now to the pre-flood peace. Remember, it was not until Noah's flood that the animals were afflicted with this kind of fear for humanity. Maybe you didn't know this. Maybe this was a detail you didn't, you didn't see. Let's talk about these judgments here in this point. I think this is huge, okay? The consequences of Adam's sin 
and then the consequences of the flood. Quite a bit different. From Genesis 3 is Adam's sin, and Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is the flood. Ten generations after Adam was Noah. All right? So this, this period of time in between Adam and Noah, we call the, the pre-flood, post-flood world. Now, the consequences of Adam's sin affected the earth. No mention is made of animals in that. No mention is made of animals in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam is, uh, is judged for his sin, spiritually dead Adam is being spoken to here, and it is the earth, the ground, that is cursed. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread until you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So here is the curse of Adam. Here is fallen Adamic humanity. We die, we return to the dirt. All right? And, and the dirt is cursed. Thorns, thistles, what you might expect here, the hardship of farming. He was farming before the fall, or told to, to keep the garden, to cultivate it, to tend it. And uh, now his labor has become work. Or did I say that right? His work has become labor. His assignment has become difficult. <laughs> All right. However you want to say it, there is a discipline upon the earth as a consequence to what Adam had done. No mention of the animals. However, now, after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, and you can also, by the way, go to Romans 8, and you can see this, that the the creation groans until now. But in Genesis chapter 9, they get off the ark. They've been on the ark for more than a year, and they get off the ark after the flood. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They are once again given the Adamic command to, to populate the earth. And then he says, The fear of you and the terror of you, fear and terror, will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. See, there's a food adjustment that's made not after Adam's sin, after Noah's flood. There is an animal adjustment. There is a food adjustment that's made. Now humanity is given the animal realm to eat. That's why I'm not a vegetarian. I didn't live before the flood. All right. Anyway, um, however, uh, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. In other words, Cook the meat. Cook the meat. Not only is it a disease thing or hygienic, but it's also uh, symbolic. The life is in the blood. You don't want to defile the image of what's happening here. When the animal dies, there's a reason for that animal to die in any event. So there is an adjustment to animal hostility. Now, this didn't come about to the consequences of the flood. What else happened as a consequence of the flood? Human lifespan started to decrease and decreased on a curve. They went from living 900 to 800 to 600 to, uh, you know, um, to 500, as it were, in, in Shem's generation and so forth, down to the 400s, down to the 300s. By the time you get to Abraham, he only lived 175. And, and they start getting lower and lower and lower. It was on a, on a parabolic curve in its decrease. What happens in the millennium? 
What happens in the millennium? We have an increase. Mortal lifespans will likewise revert to a pre-flood longevity. The millennial kingdom will have longer living humanity when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne. This is described for us in Isaiah 65 and verse 20. So stay tuned. In about 54 more weeks, we're going to be here. Somebody remind me next December, if we're still here by then. I'm waiting for a trumpet, and we probably won't be here next December. All right, Isaiah 65, 20. This isn't heaven. This isn't the new heavens and new earth, because in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more death. But in the millennium, there is death. Remember, Jesus Christ is executing people every morning. There is death in the millennium. And it says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. So infant mortality goes away. We have great health in the younger years. Then it says, The youth will die at the age of 100. The youth will die at 100. In other words, when a a 100-year-old person dies, people are going to say, Oh, that's so sad. He was so young. He had his whole life in front of him, right? The, th- the kind of things we say today when a, when a teenager or a young person dies, right? Not so much at older years. But even we talk about a man in his 50s. go, no, really? Not in the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, the youth will die at 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought of as a curse. Ooh, man, what must have happened in his life? Why was he under God's judgment? They start to, again, go back to being measured by centuries instead of being measured by decades. Now, I believe that that increase, my opinion, by the way, I can't prove it. My opinion, I've got lots of opinions. All right. My opinion is, as after the flood, the decrease was on a parabolic curve, I believe that after the, the Armageddon, after the millennium starts, that the increase will likewise, again, be on a curve. All right. And so don't think that the first babies born in the millennium are going to live 900 years, like Methuselah, all right? It may be that that first generation only lives 150 years. The second generation lives 300 years. The third generation lives 400 years. It might take to the fourth generation or fifth by the time you reach a lifespan that will last to the duration of the millennial kingdom itself, okay? Because we're talking about a thousand years there for the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, in any event. So what do we see now? What, what are we talking about? And, and I sh- should have put a picture up here. But if you think about judgment of, of, of Adam after the fall, including spiritual death okay, and the curse of the earth, and then the judgment with Noah that affected the animals and the lifespans. Got that in view? Adam's judgment, Noah's judgment. Now, when it gets reversed, it gets reversed in that order, starting with the millennium when Noah's judgment is undone. Noah's judgment is undone at the beginning of the millennium. It's not until fullness of time that Adam's judgment is undone. All right? So Adam's judgment, Noah's judgment, the millennium undoes Noah's judgment, but it's not till the new heavens and new earth that we've undone Adam's judgment, okay? Where there's no more sin, no more death, the first things have passed away. So that's, that's the plan of God reader, by the way. The ABC plan of God reader will unfold all of that for you in, uh, in that particular order. Well, um, so if, uh, if you are a part of some 
animal rights organization or you're trying to bring this millennial circumstance. I'm not saying you're wrong for that. I'm just saying that uh, animal hostility will continue to be a feature. Animals today are wild unless we break them and domesticate them because God has built within them this fear and this terror. And I think the distinction being if there's only the fear, they can be broken, they can be domesticated. If it's fear plus terror, you will never domesticate that wild beast. That wild beast will always be a wild beast. And if you keep a panther as a pet, I will officiate your funeral, all right? We are not dealing with the millennial circumstances of the animals until Christ returns. I read these news stories and that people are always so clueless. Oh, I had no idea why this python ate my baby. You know, come on, people. What are we doing? What are we doing? But see, here's the thing. All right. I'm sorry. That was kind of gruesome. But the... Uh, They have substituted the Creator for the creature. They are living in a Romans 1 rebellion against the Creator. And they are attempting, they're setting themselves up as gods. And the God who created these wild beasts will not be mocked. Will not be mocked. All right. Cats and dogs, you're okay there. (laughs) We have domesticated lots of, lots of, domesticated animals. All right, let's talk about the regathering of Israel, the last part of this chapter, verses 10 through 16. The regathering of Israel, the global regathering of Israel, according to Isaiah chapter 11, the global regathering of Israel is their second such regathering. It is their second such global regathering. It is not their third or their fourth, or anything after the second. It is precisely said to be their second such global regathering. And this is huge. All right, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through the end of the chapter. 10 through 16. In that day... See, if you understand the plain language of the text, if you rightly divide the word of truth... You know, God is not done with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. We aren't Jews, we are church. The body of Christ is neither Jew nor Gentile. That's why it makes no difference if you're white or black or American or African or Mexican or whatever. None of that matters anything in the church age. We are neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither bond nor free. We, have, we are heavenly citizens in Christ. However, once the church is raptured, we are removed from this earth, God restores His program for Israel, at which time the racial distinctions, the national distinctions, the, land, the allotted lands and boundaries and languages and nations will once again be a factor in how they operate upon this earth. And so in that day, the nations, the Gentiles, will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Jerusalem will be the number one vacation destination, the number one pilgrimage destination for all the Gentiles to go and to worship the creator God of the universe, Jesus Christ, seated on the, on the Davidic throne. Then it will happen 
on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the islands of the sea. It is a global regathering. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed from Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, if you ever do the prophetic studies on Israel and their dispersion and Israel and the regathering, then this is huge. All right. This is not bringing Israel in birth out of Egypt. This is not bringing them back from a captivity in Babylon. All right. Bringing them back from a captivity in Babylon was not the four corners of the earth. It was not global and it was not everybody. It's estimated that it was only 10%, a small tithe of Jewish people returned from Babylon to Israel. Did you realize that? Under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, under Nehemiah, they had three waves of returnees and it was a fraction of the Jewish population of Babylon. The bulk stayed in Babylon. The bulk were wealthy, prosperous, thriving, doing just fine in Babylon. And the idea of going back to that tiny little nothing place, the idea of going back to that little that little sliver of a spring-fed, not even a river, the Gihon Spring and whatever else, the idea of going back to that place of difficulty, for the secular-minded Jew, they wanted no part of that. This, though, is not an exodus from Egypt or a return from Babylon. This is a global regathering from the four corners of the earth. This is promised to be done by angelic majesty, too, by the way. Angelic transport, not airlines. <laughs> All right. Although I've read stupid stuff about the wings of eagles being the, the logo of whatever airline. They have to change it through the years, too, because originally it was Pan Am. We don't have Pan Am anymore, or TWA, or, you know, they've got to update their their prophecy books based on airlines that aren't even in existence anymore. I believe the wings are wings of eagles are not the American Air Force. The wings of eagles are the angelic transport that takes place because every Jewish person on the planet is going to be regathered, probably including a whole lot of people who didn't even know they were Jews. <laughs> you know, how many people have no idea that their family is racially Jewish and, and never knew? God does. God knows precisely, and they will find themselves in the land of Israel. Now, the issue on the second time I think is critical because um, it is said, and, and I didn't know this for a long time. I didn't believe this for a long time. Arnold Fruchtenbaum taught this to me years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I'm very thankful for it. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Jewish Christian scholar, genius. We've had him here before. We need to have him again. We're overdue. We've got to have Arnold back. Um, but understand that the victorious millennial kingdom, global regathering, will be in faith. It is a regathering in faith and obedience to the Lord. And it is specified precisely as the second time. The second time. That's huge. This is, this is bigger than what we've been talking about with Paul and his two visits to Jerusalem, right? His first visit, his second visit, his third visit. We're being very careful in the Galatian study to, to follow what the Scripture says and to chart his first three visits to Jerusalem and why that second visit is not the, the, the Acts 15 visit, okay? Um, that's a big study, but this one's bigger. This one's bigger, and I'll tell you why. Because... Um, 
Because Israel is in the land today. There is a nation state of Israel, a Jewish nation is in the land of promise in our lifetime. All right? And for 1,900 years, that was not the case. For 1,900 years, Jewish people were scattered all over the world and they did not have a nation since 70 AD. All right? Well, the Bar Kokhba revolt, they did not have Jerusalem from 70 AD. They didn't have a nation from 135 AD. Okay? When, when Rome moved in and expelled them all, created, uh, created a, a Gentile capital there and populated it with, with Gentiles. Israel received their nation state again in 1948. Okay? In not my lifetime, but some of you in this room. All right? And it's still there today. In our lifetime, there is a Jewish nation in the land today, and they have been regathered from the four corners of the earth. They have been regathered from every nation, every language, every tongue. It has already happened, and it's been happening since the Zionist movement of the late 1800s. But here we are told specifically it is the second time. Why is that important? Again, he will lift up a standard. This is verse 12. Uh, no, verse 11, 11, 11. It will happen on that day. The Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. And here's why it's important, all right? Um, through the years, evangelicals have struggled to understand we want to bless Israel, but how do we bless Israel? Do we, do we just rubber stamp everything that the Prime Minister Netanyahu says? Do we fund everything the Knesset wants to do? Do we, do we agree with them in everything, no matter what? If they're violent and abusive towards the, the Arabs, do we say, well, too bad? Or, what does it mean to bless the Jewish people? What should our national policy be? I think first and foremost, it ought to be evangelistic. We ought to be supporting missionary endeavors like Israel, my glory, and, and like uh, chosen people ministries and aerial ministries. And we, we ought to be proclaiming Christ to every Jewish person on the planet. That's the first blessing we ought to be providing for them. Okay, But then also, I think we ought to recognize that Israel is currently in the land and they are in the land in unbelief. We want to identify that the first global regathering is in unbelief, we're told. The regathering in unbelief. That they have to be in the land, according to Daniel chapter 9, according to Jeremiah chapter 30, They have to be in the land in order to come under the hand of God's tribulational discipline. Until until 1948, those passages could not be fulfilled. But now that there is a political entity in Jerusalem, in Israel, a Jewish nation in Israel, the land, can sign the covenant with Antichrist. A Jewish nation in the land can be regathered by his hand and be placed under the hand of his discipline. What's called the time of Jacob's sorrow. The time of Jacob's trouble. It requires the national presence of a Jewish nation in the land. So the first global regathering of the Jews was observed historically in the Zionist movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. All right, We're talking about... Um, who are those guys? Herzl, was that his name? And, and all the, the early movement of the Zionist... Um, Mass migrations, okay? 
They're in limited numbers. There have been Jewish people living in the neighborhood forever. They've never left the neighborhood. Even when the Romans pushed them out, they stayed as close as they could and then crept back in in later years. Um, there have always been Jews in the land, but they've never had an independent national entity. They were under Arabs. They were under Turks. They were under even under the British after World War I. Not until 1948 did they have their own government, their own administration. But what did they get? They didn't get the throne of David, did they? Okay. They got Golda Meir, right? I like her. She, she was great. But, and David Ben-Gurion, okay? They had some marvelous leaders. They did not have the son of David seated on the Davidic throne. And still to this day, Bibi Netanyahu is a marvelous, marvelous guy. I wish I could get him saved. All right. They're not in the land in faith. They're not in the land worshiping Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father, who died on the cross for their sins. It's going to take the tribulation to humble them to identify that. So, this regathering has been in unbelief. They're going to sign the covenant with Antichrist in Daniel 9.27. They're going to... uh, that's, they're going to build a temple that Antichrist will be defiling. All of these things needed a nation and a temple. Now, they don't have a temple yet. That's the kind of the final piece of the puzzle that hasn't shown up yet. They want to build their temple. Only problem is there's a mosque sitting on top of that mountain, the Dome of the Rock. And what's going to have to happen between now and then? Because the Bible says that Antichrist will take his seat in the most holy place and display himself as being God. That temple will be rebuilt, and it will be rebuilt before the, uh, maybe even before the rapture. We might see it in our lifetime. Or not. Maybe it'll get rebuilt after the rapture. But the nation was founded before the rapture. The church was on hand to witness that. Perhaps the church will be on hand to witness the uh, the building of the third temple. Because it's already built. I mean, it's already pre-built. It's pre-manufactured. Every wall Every doorknob, every uh, article of furnishing, the altar, everything, all the, the robes for the priests, everything is built, ready to be installed, ready to go. They need a red heifer to, sanctif- to sanctify their new high priest, and there was one last year that got a lot of news attention. All right. They are ready to put a temple on the Temple Mount, but they're still going to do it in unbelief. Okay? Why would you build a temple when the veil has been rent in two? If you, have, if you understood the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you wouldn't build a third temple. You would start worshiping in spirit and in truth. But they're going to build a third temple with another veil. That too is coming up. And so this becomes important. I used to think, until Arnold pointed this out to me, the second time is not the third time, is not the fourth time. See, I used to think that Israel could be destroyed tomorrow. I used to think that if, 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 uh, if the Arabs invaded, if whoever invaded, if they destroyed Israel tomorrow, if that was done away with, then I used to think that that wouldn't thwart any of God's promises at all. Just as long as he regathered them again at some point prior to the tribulation. So in other words, I had it in my mind that there could be another regathering and they could be destroyed a hundred times. And then as long as they were back again, and as long as they were in their land and they could sign the treaty with Antichrist and so forth, until Arnold Fruchton mom sat me down and opened up his Bible and had me read Isaiah 11, 11. And he said, there's only two. 
The millennial regathering is the second regathering. And so I know that uh, all the threat of Iran and their nuclear weapons and all the rest of that, it's not going to happen. They cannot destroy Israel. They are indestructible because God has made promises. I'm going to have to close with this, but the, uh, when we read these things, I hope it puts us in great fear, in great reverence before God, because none of these promises of national regathering applies to America. All right? If our nation is destroyed under the hand of God's divine discipline, our nation is never promised a restoration. And just because, I mean, this is now the United States of America before that. This was the Confederate States of America before that. It was the Republic of Texas before that. It was Mexico. Before that, it was whatever, okay? The Comanches. And before the Comanches, it was who they stole it from. And before that, it was who they stole it from. And, and, and that's just the way it's always been. People come, then other people come and take it. God's in charge. And whoever takes it away from America, God's in charge of that too. All right? We are not, our nation does not have the eternal promises Israel has. And if we continue to glorify the God of this earth, if we continue to blaspheme the Creator, if our nation continues to curse the Jewish people, then we might expect that our nation will be done before we know it. So pray for our nation. Take a chapter like this and Start praying for our nation. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Isaiah chapter 11. I'm looking forward to the root of the stem of Jesse being unveiled, being manifest. I can't wait for the trumpet to sound, for the Lord to descend with a shout. Father, it's, uh, it's tiring to hear my Savior's name used as a curse word. And people get mad and they shout Jesus Christ, but they're not worshiping Jesus Christ. They, uh, they view his name as profanity. And yet, Father, it is at His name that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And I thank You. I'm looking forward to that day to be unveiled. And in the meantime, Father, teach us to, to uh, number our days that we might present before You a heart of wisdom. I thank You, Father, that our name is written down in glory. We have a new name written down in glory. I thank You, Father, that, that uh, Steve Arnold has now entered into that glory. And... Uh, Uh, Our brother that we know, we don't even know his new name yet, Father. All we know is the name he used to have. And uh, Father, I just thank you that you are so faithful. We do lift up the family. We do lift up um, the services. We we lift up everything, Father, that through, through the sorrow comes the joy, and through the sorrow and joy comes the glory. Thank you, Father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.